AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And as usual on Tuesdays, we're joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, Patrick Kulikan, as Patrick and I are going to be chatting about some of the latest news at the state capitol, being that, of course, we are in the midst of the legislative session, and there are no shortage of bills and potential new laws getting passed at the legislature. So, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about all of these today. Uh, always a pleasure, Brett. Absolutely. So let's start off with where do we want to go today? Uh, let's start off talking about uh, what Michelle Griffith wrote on how Senate Republicans say the infrastructure bill that Democrats are proposing is dead on arrival unless there's some tax cuts. So before we get into that a little bit more, let's back up to 2022. Why did the legislature fail to pass an infrastructure bill in 2022? And, well, how does this year's package differ? Do we have a better chance of getting this one passed, or could that Republican opposition end up sinking an infrastructure bill? Yeah, so the, the legislature passes usually passes a public works uh, infrastructure bill in the even years. Uh, a cynic might say it's uh, so they can send pork out to their districts uh, right when uh, right in an election year. Um, and uh, what's unique about the uh, infrastructure bill is that uh, they're using uh, bonding, general obligation bonds to pay for it. Uh, it makes sense. These are investments. These are long-term investments, so you should pay for them uh, over time. Um, but the uh, the Constitution requires that uh, in order to do that kind of uh, borrowing, you need a supermajority of both chambers uh, to get it passed. So you're always going to need, generally, you're going to need both parties uh, to participate. What happened last year was, uh, you know, being an election year, um, and I think there was so much acrimony um, by the end of that, uh, by the end of last year, um, or when they were negotiating it uh, in, in May, June of last year, uh, that they, they couldn't come together. And um, I think that Republicans thought that they would take the legislature and um, and then they would come back this year and, and be in a better position and pick projects more to their liking. And it would be a, a bill that they, uh, they actually uh, wanted more than last year's. Well, lo and behold, they lost. And uh, here we are. And uh, so the, the House Democrats have said, look, here's the package that we were ready to pass last year uh, on a bipartisan basis. Uh, here it is. It's a, I think it's a billion and a half of bonding, and it's $400 million of just straight cash. That only needs a simple majority. That passed last night um, with, uh, with the, the, some Republican votes, uh, plenty uh, there. Um, now, the problem is that Senate Republicans, um, having uh, watched this session, uh, really having watched Democrats uh, hold all the cards with the trifecta and pass a bunch of priorities, uh, progressive priorities, Republicans say, well, look, here's one thing where we can stop them because they need some of our votes to pass this because, it's uh, again, it's borrowing, and so you, you need some Republican votes. And so we've got a little bit of leverage, and we're going to use that. And and so that's where things stand with this infrastructure bill. The Democratic response is, well, look, we're sitting on a lot of uh, surplus money, especially that can be used uh, only be used one time. Um, so we will, if you don't want to uh, participate, we'll just pay for all these projects in cash. Uh, so that's sort of the that's the uh, the Democratic leverage there is they're sitting on this pile of money, which they can't really use for ongoing programs because they wouldn't be funded, so they could use them for these one-time projects. It's uh, it's almost perfect. 
Um, so we'll just have to see. Uh, I mean, I think Democrats would rather use bonding money um, and and rather have a bipartisan bill um, because bipartisan victories are nice. So we'll just have to see how it plays out. But I, there's going to be a big infrastructure bill this year. It's just a question of uh, how they get there. Well, on the Senate side, the DFL would need seven Senate Republicans in order to get to that supermajority to pass that bonding bill. What exact tax cuts are Republicans looking for? Is there any potential wiggle room where DFLers might come on board, or is this largely one of those cases where the DFL, as you said, will basically just go with the stance, all right, well, if you're not going to go along with this bonding bill, well, we'll just use straight cash and take it out of that budget surplus. Yeah, I mean, they're asking um, for uh, for the whole hog, um, and obviously they're not going to get it. They they want uh, a bigger rebate than Tim Walls uh, has proposed, uh, I think 2500 They don't want a cap at income, so even a millionaire would get the rebate. Um, they want to give a full uh, subtraction for Social Security benefits, so no one who uh, gets Social Security benefits would be uh, taxed on those benefits. Uh, they they uh, want to cut the marginal income tax rates, um, uh, which, again, are tilted toward the wealthy. So they've got a whole long wish list of uh, tax cuts that they released uh, last week. Um, that's clearly not going to happen. There there might be some compromise there because I think Democrats, uh, um, t- from my vantage point, unfortunately, have boxed themselves, boxed themselves in on this uh, Social Security tax cut. So, um you know, there might be some give there, um, and that, that might uh, buy them the votes they need for the public works bill. Um, but, yeah, they're going for the whole thing. They, they, they're asking for the whole thing, and as well they should, I suppose, but they're not going to get it. Well, moving on, I want to talk about a piece that Dina Winter has been working on because this is a really interesting bill. It's called the Democracy for the People Act, which largely has to do with, well, election security and making sure our elections stay secure. But within this bill, it includes a provision that would make it a gross misdemeanor punishable by up to a year in jail and a $3,000 fine to knowingly spread materially false information with the intent to impede or prevent people from voting. It would apply before 60 days before an election. Of course, we have numerous examples of this happening in the past where uh, we've had cases where there's been false information campaigns, mostly in black neighborhoods around the country, trying to send false information uh, about uh, elections coming up. So this bill tries to combat that. But I'm curious, what kinds of false information would be considered illegal under this new potential law? And how would this be enforced? Because uh, this strikes me as being really interesting with, of course, all the election inform- disinformation we've been seeing for the past few years. Yeah, this is a tough one. I mean, I, I think it's aimed at what I what I think of as really an older, older style of election disinformation, and that's when you would go into, that's when Republicans would go into a black neighborhood and they would leaflet it, and it would say, if you have any outstanding tickets, um, you, you can't vote, and if you try to vote, it's a felony or... They would uh, give the wrong date for election day, this kind of thing, um, and um, uh, so so it's targeted at that. And 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 I suppose in, in a case like this, it would be you know you'd be fairly clear cut. Um, you know, if you, if you go around leafleting, telling people that election day is on uh, the third of November when it's really the second, I think it's pretty. You know, I think it's you can show intent and you can probably prosecute there. Um, but, you know, I, Dina raised some of these hypotheticals in, in her article, 
Um, I think it's it's. I mean, what do you do with 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 the president of the United States says that um, all you know mail-in voting is fixed or the machines are fixed? I mean, uh, that strikes me as um, maybe you could fit into the definition of what is criminal there. But I mean, uh, and and maybe the president of the United States is a criminal. Um, but it just seems like a, a very difficult uh, crime to prosecute in in this environment. And then uh, the the other problem is, uh, uh, the, anytime you, you try to police speech, you really uh, have to you always have to ask yourself, well, what's going to happen if my opponent is the one who's doing the policing? And and so I I'm a little leery of this. Um, and I'm not really sure um, how many pro- county prosecutors are going to wind up uh, using this law if, in fact, it, it uh, passes. Well, and you brought up the example of Donald Trump, how he could potentially be subject to this law. Now, of course, that would be a lot tougher to do, being that, of course, he is a – well, used to be a federal election office holder, of course, being the president of the United States. But I'm thinking of someone maybe even a little bit closer to home, someone like Mike Lindell, who's been – of course, been spreading all sorts of information about voting machines and how they're fraudulent and so on and so on. So I do carry, I am curious if this type of bill could impact someone like a Mike Lindell when he's out doing his thing, talking about voting machines and whether, well, this uh, covers mostly just, uh, well, as you were talking about your example, you know, doing something directly false, like saying an election is on November 3rd when it's really November 2nd versus, you know, having maybe a little bit more of a gray area when you're talking about political opinions from the likes of Mike Lindell and others. Yeah, I mean he's he's probably a better example uh, because obviously uh, Trump. Uh, um, if you're in a, if you're the president of the United States, you can't be indicted. Um, but Mike Lindell is a good example. I mean he's a Minnesotan, um, and so if he says, "Well, these voting machines are crooked," um, is he willfully trying to impede someone from voting? I mean I I, I don't really know the answer. Uh, to that, I, I do think it's, it creates uh, challenges um, for um, for prosecutors. Uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, I I distinctly remember. I think Dina gave examples from 2004, and there were. I remember the 2004 election. There was um, there was uh, stories about, especially in, in the inner city precincts, of uh, leafleting with this kind of disinformation. In an attempt to uh, to uh, dissuade black voters uh, from going to the polls, and and it does feel like it ought to be criminal. Um, but uh, again, anytime you get into policing speech, it's uh, it gets to be um, to me a little um, a little problematic. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if this bill ends up uh, changing or if there's more provisions added. Uh, certainly, we're uh, early along, so we'll have to see what happens with this bill as the session goes on. I want to move on to another topic, and this one really uh, caught my attention because it has to do with former Minnesota Republican Governor Tim Pawlenty. So what's happening tonight is that there's a hearing on the proposed merger of Sanford and Fairview, which, of course, would create a large health care system uh, throughout the entire Midwest. This meeting, uh, this public hearing tonight is scheduled for the Minnesota, at the Minnesota State Legislature, and there will be three special guests testifying Keith Ellison, the current Attorney General, as well as former Governors Mark Dayton and Tim Pawlenty. 
The health systems agreed to push back finalizing their merger until May 31st. They originally had March 31st as a target date. So I'm curious, what exactly could we expect to hear tonight? And I'm curious about this part, too. Why exactly is Tim Pawlenty testifying? Because normally you would think as a Republican he would be very much in favor of this merger. So I'm curious what might be occurring tonight at this hearing and this testimony we're going to be getting from Ellison Dayton and Pawlenty. So they're uh, they're going to make the argument that the legislature should at least uh, stop the merger until the Fairview comes to some kind of uh, arrangement with the University of Minnesota, so they the the university can take back the teaching hospital that, that is currently under the control of Fairview. And uh, uh, I think that's a reasonable argument to make. Um, the, the tougher sell at the legislature that the EU has asked for almost a billion dollars uh, to, to do that transaction. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, Palenti and Dayton, I think it's a, it's a powerful kind of symbolic moment uh, that will try to show um, unity around the idea that Minnesotans um, ought to be in possession of that teaching hospital um, and, uh, and, and not some, um, corporate out of state, uh, I mean, it's technically a nonprofit, but some, not some out of state, uh, um, medical behemoth, um, like Sanford that doesn't necessarily have the interests of the people of Minnesota in mind. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, Plenty the Republican, he, and he certainly kind of ran hard right, uh, toward the end of his, uh, second term as he uh, sought the presidency. Um, but I think he's a he's a proud Minnesotan, and and I think um, most uh, even most Republicans would say that a teaching hospital uh, is a is an important asset, it's a public asset, as one that uh, the people of Minnesota ought to be in control of. Well, it'll certainly be a unique hearing tonight. Again. Uh having both a former Democratic governor in Mark Dayton and Republican governor in Tim Pawlenty testifying. So that will be occurring uh, tonight, I believe, over at 6 p.m. at the state capitol. Well, before we wrap things up, Patrick, kind of curious uh, what else you've got to been keeping your eye on as we uh, enter the final uh, few weeks and months of the state legislature. Uh, what else are you following right now? Obviously, there's lots of motion, of course, on legalizing cannabis. I know there also are potential, uh, there's a potential new ERA that could be passed at the Minnesota State Legislature. What else are you watching this week? Uh, I'm really interested in, in we're hitting the, the heat of budget season. And, and so I, I think now are, are the tough decisions that, uh, despite the big surplus that Democratic, uh, uh, leadership are, are going to have to make in concert with Governor Tim Walz. Um, and so I'll be watching to see, you know, what, what tax cuts are they going to give? And then once they do that, um, and then once they do a lot of one-time spending, like we talked about earlier with public works, there's the Viking Stadium, there's, there's that, there's the university getting the teaching hospital back and so forth. There's a bunch of one-time spending projects they can do. Then it's, you know, what else is left um, where Democrats can show we've made a, we've made a measurable improvement in people's lives. And, and, and I'm talking about big programs like free tuition, free child care, um, and maybe uh, really significant help uh, with housing. Um, they can't really do all of those. Um, they can definitely do one, and, and I think they will, and then and then maybe half of another, um, you know, start something significant but really not fully funded. So I think these are the decisions they're making. Um, and, again, that's sort of in conflict a little bit with 
how do you do that Social Security tax cut when you had a lot of Democrats running on it, um, won those uh, those battleground seats, the reason that they're in the majority, they, they, they campaigned on it. You kind of have to give something on that. Um, but then, you know, that takes away money for future years and, and those kinds of programs that I talked about that would help them show Minnesotans, like, look, you used to spend tens of thousands, in some cases, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on child care and, and college, and now, you know, we've helped you on that. So, so that those are decisions being made right now, and I'm, I'm really curious to see how that plays out. Well, a great way to follow. Well, a great way to follow along with what's happening at the legislature, of course, is going to the Minnesota Reformer. Make sure you go minnesotareformer.com to follow along with what's been happening at the state legislature. As uh, as you mentioned, Patrick, lots of uh, critical bills coming up, including budget items. So make sure you follow along minnesotareformer.com. We have been speaking with Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor in chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950.